We'll start a new sermon series next week. We're going to start with a one-off here this week. But you join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word together. Thank you for the opportunity to acknowledge you as Lord together. We'll give you this time for your glory. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open your word up to us, even as we open it up. And I pray, Lord, work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. An old friend of mine named John recently posted something on InstaFaceTwit that I thought I would read. He said, to the professionally offended, I think there are good reasons to be offended. But to the professionally offended class, it's a form of manipulation. If I want my way, I'll claim that I'm offended, hoping that because Americans are generally nice people who don't want to offend anyone, they'll just roll over, even when it's absurd. Now, he and I, after he wrote that, he and I essentially agreed that a reasonable litmus test, maybe when you're talking about being offended, might be to ask yourself, would the average person on the street, with no prior axe to grind, no horse in the race, would the average person on the street be offended at X? Now, they might disagree strongly with X, but would they be immediately, actively offended at X? I thought that was, I thought that was a fair litmus test, and that's because I'm naive. Uh, both he and I were very naive for at least two different reasons. First off, the very first comment to his posting was from another friend of ours who expressed that she was very offended. I'm not kidding. She was very offended at his use of the word good in the first line. And the rest of it just offended her all the more. But she's like, what constitutes good reasons to be offended versus bad reasons to be offended? And who does John think he is to be the one to decide that in his life? It's not that he did. Apparently, she said, no, everybody gets the right to be offended at anything ever because all feelings are your feelings and thus completely valid. Every offense everybody ever has is completely legitimate. Because the second reason that we were, I was naive, is that, let's be honest, the average person on the street today is offended much of the time. We spend a lot of time being offended at one another. Democrats are offended by anyone who would have ever voted for Trump. You cannot be my friend. I don't disagree with you. You cannot be my friend if you voted for Trump. Republicans are offended that Democrats were looking for ways to impeach Trump before he actually even took office. I'm offended. I don't just think you're wrong. I'm offended. Person A is offended that anyone would own a gun in today's culture, in today's climate. Person B is offended that anyone would question why I might own a gun. I'm offended. You would even ask that. Bucky is offended that Floyd gets to go first in line and gets first choice. Floyd's offended that Bucky gets to go last in line and might get all the rest of the good stuff and clean up at the end. Why did Sarah get a crown? I didn't get a crown. How many of you came to church this morning going, well, I mean, I'll get my Burger King crown. Was that your expectation? And if you didn't get one, you're like, well, where was my Burger King crown? By the way, there's technically a parable about that, right? Aren't you happy with what you got? I was until she got better. Not just, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. I'm offended 
I'm hurt. We spend our time disagreeing, but not just disagreeing. And not even just being like grumpy with one another, like the proverbial grumpy old man sitting on his porch going, get off my lawn. Not just that, but offended, outraged, personally upset that somebody is looking at something differently than I would. I think you're wrong. (laughs) Why? Why? Is it like a big issue? It's because everything's a big issue. That comment that she made, that question that he asked, that the posting that he put up there, the the schedule change she just made, we're like, "Uh, what? Ah! How did that hurt you? That's not what I would have done. Okay, how did that hurt you? Why did that hurt you? Why are you so immediately, personally upset? Now, there's a lot of things that we can talk about. In fact, refer back to, maybe you remember that little mini sermon series where we talked about increased cortisol levels because of unresolved stress during a time of global pandemic. But I would say to you today, in this context, at least one reason that we're going to do, that will help us to understand why there's so much of this immediate outrage, upset, offense, reaction, is because an increased moral sensitivity tied to an untethered basis for morality. We're more moral with less basis for it. Think about that for a second. All these heightened stress levels and socio-political infighting you just don't see conflicts the same way i mean we've always seen it somewhat this way but everything's ratcheted up nowadays any conflict is now a fight any discussion is an argument any argument is an attack any political election is a crusade between my gleaming knight and your slavering dragon when was the last time we had a presidential election where we went well you know i think i like this one better Well, I mean, they're both messed up, but I think this one makes more sense. No. Gleaming knight, slavering dragon. Nothing in between. Once you do that, once you ratchet everything up to 11, once every discussion has been turned into a fight, once it's no longer about mistakes or preferences or opinions, and it becomes about right and wrong, it is a moral discussion now. Yes? Everything becomes a moral discussion. It's not about... Well, here's my take on it. This is my inclination. This is my lifestyle choice. This is my assertion. This is what I think. That the, This is me standing for what is right. And if you disagree, then you are defending what is evil. Increased moral sensitivity tied to an untethered moral basis. There absolutely are moral issues in life. And I'm a pastor standing by in a pulpit with a Bible in front of me. I believe in morality, okay? I even believe in having moral arguments. I think so. But unpack that with me a little bit. Number one, I'm sorry, but not everything that we're offended with is because it offended God. Number two, I'm trying, and I'm not always, but right now while I'm chatting with you, I'm trying to make sure that I'm tethering my morality to something bigger, richer, and wiser than just me. And I think that's crucial. If morality means anything, it, it's bigger than just what Rousseau talked about as being a social contract where most of us got together and most of us agreed that most of us agree on this. So let's just do it this way. If morality means anything, it has to be because it's based on something 
universal, something objective, something eternal, something capital T true beyond us. Because otherwise, otherwise we say, well, murder isn't immoral. It's just most of us agree that we shouldn't do it. And we call that agreement immorality. If most of us were to decide that murder is okay, then it is no longer essentially immoral. I would suggest to you that murder is essentially immoral because it has been declared to be immoral by something bigger, deeper, richer, more eternal and unchanging than us, a moral basis. Once you remove that standard, once you remove that moral basis, you're left with two choices. Number one, there is no morality. It's a free-for-all, do as thou wilt. Moral anarchy. I contend that is not what we see today. We do not live in moral anarchy. If that were the case, everybody would be going, yeah, do whatever you want. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. It is no, hey, you know, live and let live. You do whatever. Both sides are burning books, banning books. Both sides are banning books. Both sides are claiming that their take on moral identity, gender identity, is the moral choice, the correct right choice. Both sides want to evangelize and convert the other side because both sides want to be declared moral. Not just, you can believe that thing that you believe that I disagree with. No, I want you to tell me that I am in the right. And if anybody disagrees that I am, you are evil. You are immoral. We do not live in a moral anarchy. We live in a moral democracy. Be moral, but there is no standard. Everybody decides for themselves how to decide for themselves. And I would argue that is inherently unhealthy because it is based on how I feel. No, me and Megan. No, me and Megan and Sarah. Okay, us in this church group. That what we decide is moral is what's moral today. I might change that tomorrow. But it isn't freedom. It's morality. Because if Megan and I decide that something is moral and Marshall disagrees, I'm going to hold Marshall accountable to our morality. He does not have the freedom. That is the culture we live in. And it's a dangerous one. And it's a malleable one. Ask J.K. Rowling how she feels about being one day lauded as a hero because she's a progressive feminist. And the next day derided because she's a progressive feminist. She didn't change one word of what she's saying. But the winds of political morality changed out from under her. We hold our ground in moral battles. We, we find a, a hill to die on. That hill is either solid and stable and based on something that doesn't change, or that hill shifts and we're willing to die on a hill that may not even be there tomorrow. It's unhealthy. This is why astonishingly growing number of human beings, especially Americans, are in an incredibly growing, professionally offended class. I'm constantly offended because I live in offense and I don't even have a stable sense of how to gauge that. 
So I spend all my time going, somewhere on the line, you have said something that I find offensive. Spending so much of my time being so hurt and so scared and so stressed and so outraged all the time because the world is just getting so horrible and I just can't even. And if you do any study of history, if you're honest, the world has usually been a bad place. And let's be honest, it's usually been a lot worse than this polished little corner of the world that we live in today that we think is just so horrible, I can't take it. And if you say, Kevin, this is not a sermon, this is a rant. I apologize, because I didn't make it clear that this entire time I'm talking about you. I'm not really talking about the world. I don't know, have you read Romans? Romans chapter 1. Paul just goes on and on about those naughty secular Romans and all the stuff that they do wrong. And all the Romans go, I know, what a rant. What does he say in Romans chapter 2, verse 1? He says, you, church, you, Christians, therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. So if you bought Romans 1, congratulations. You didn't realize it, but you got Romans 2 also. For those of you going, wow, Kevin's on a rant. I mean, I guess I agree with them. They're wrong. Congratulations, you own the rest of the sermon. Because I kind of expect the world to have an increased moral sensitivity and an untethered basis for morality. They're flailing. They have no foundation. They're trying desperately to figure something out. And all they have to build on is their most fleeting, visceral, personal fears, hungers, passions. And you and I are more than that, right? We are not just based on our most visceral, fleeting fears, hungers, and passions, are we? Are we? Don't we have something solid? Don't we have something richer than that? Don't we have something bigger than us? How many of you know this graphic? This graphic that we've talked about before. How many of you would sit there and say, I know what this is in reference to? This is in reference to something we've talked about before as a church to remind us as Christians, as human beings, really, all human beings, but especially as Christians who are trying to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God. It's reminding all of us that as Christians, it's good to discipline ourselves to have warmer hearts and thicker skins, to encourage us to be more sensitive to what's going on in the hearts of the people around us and a little less sensitized to what we feel those around us are doing to us. Just a little bit. I don't mean that you shouldn't care about injustice toward yourself or injustice toward others, but people. That comment that she made in the restaurant last month that you're still offended at was not injustice. Just You just didn't like it. What I mean is that we need to stop and think about how we're stopping to feel about everything going on around us and why we're so immediately upset about this, so emotionally raw about that. that we talk to people and we go, I'll, I'll tell you about my day. This is what they did here. And I went here. This is what they did. And they screwed this up. And I counted on this person. She let me down. And you know what? This isn't the way it was when I was a kid. This isn't the way it was in my last church. This wasn't the way it was in my last job. This wasn't the way it was in my last house. This wasn't the way it was with my last car. This wasn't the way it was. I'm sorry, fill in the gap. Where were you going to go with that? 
You ever have days like that where you're just like this immediate, why? Well, they messed this up. Did they fix it? Yeah. Okay. But they messed it up. I know. Did they fix it? Well, I mean, yes. Okay. Sorry, why are you spitting mad? Literally, you spat on me. Why are you spitting mad? Stop and consider how what we do next in our words, in our actions, and even in our hearts is so important to Christ. Open up with me, if you would, please. We're going to leave this graphic up here. Open up, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 6. I love the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I want to do a little cherry-picking here. Jesus is preaching in Matthew 6, saying, this is how I want you to pray. Not, not necessarily what I want you to pray, as if this is an incantation and I want you to quote the Lord's Prayer. Not that it's wrong to quote the Lord's Prayer, but he doesn't say, this is what I want you to pray. He says, this is how I want you to pray. This is the, the mentality. This is the priority. This is the heart that I want you to pray with. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, familial, intimate, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. Not just familial and intimate, but familial and intimate, and yet holy and revered. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By whom? We want God's will to be done. By whom? Everybody else? All those people who are currently sinning. All those other Christians. Pardon me? By me. How about all of those? By me, by them, by us, by all of us. I pray that your will be done by all of us. But by definition, that has to include me, right? I pray, Jesus says, I want you to do this. I want you to pray with this mentality. Lord, help me to do your will as your kingdom. Give us today our daily bread, just what we need today, just to get through today. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we often think of that as a prayer of repentance. Please forgive me. And in some ways it is. That is not the emphasis. When you look at the whole picture, you need to remember and emphasize what Jesus emphasized in the original. Forgive us our debts, our sins, our shortcomings, the things that we do. Forgive us our debts to the same degree to which we have already also forgiven our debtors. Do you want to live like a forgiven child of the living God who died to wash you clean from sin? Is that what, the, is that what you want to do? Is it? Is it? Do you want to live like a forgiven child of the living God? Do you have any frustrations, bitternesses? It's hard to let go of. Choose because you can't have both. You cannot have both. They are mutually exclusive. And if you go, Kevin, you're being harsh. I preferred the rant. Um, Jesus continues, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one for, what is the for there for? It's essentially a because or a therefore. What's it there to do? It, it grammatically links the verses, right? I'm talking about this because this. Yes? Grammatically, somehow, verse 13 and verse 14 connect. You need to pray not to fall into sin, 
You need to pray to be delivered from even the temptation of falling into sin because if you forgive men when they sin against you, the Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father won't forgive your sins. So verse 12 and verse 14 are both talking about you want to be forgiven? You have to make sure you're forgiving. And in between that, with a four connecting it, on account of connecting it, he says, so pray that you don't fall into temptation. So grammatically, logically, theologically, to at least some degree, at least part of what he's getting at there, that we always love to go, yep, save me from Satan, is him going, guys, pray that you be delivered from the temptation to hold on to your bitterness and refuse to forgive while begging for forgiveness. There's another parable about that one. Isn't there? I want to be forgiven, but I'm not forgiving him. Forgive as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation because Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Isn't that one logical thought? Do you want to live like a forgiven child of the living God who died to wash you clean from sin? Do you want to live forgiven and live like that and feel that grace? Do you? I do. Is there any bitterness that you have? Any frustration? Any blah, blah, it's hard for me to let this go. Because you can't have both. Pick one. Pick one. Not my rant. That's Christ's rant. In fact, just a few verses later, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Logic. You're either going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. I don't care whether that's talking about God and money, or God's kingdom versus the world, or forgiveness versus emotive bitterness. If they're mutually exclusive, you're going to pick only one of them, and you're going to be devoted to that as your master. You're going to stand on it. You're going to prioritize it. You're going to prioritize and justify your response based on your devotion to that. Is your devotion to God and his kingdom, or is your devotion to, well, I'm right, that's what you will prioritize on. That's what you'll build on. You might subordinate some of the other stuff, but you'll build on one. If your response genuinely honors Christ, your words, your actions, your heart, if that is genuinely based on Christ, and you know that Jesus Christ himself would say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's, that's what I want then praise God, take that stand and don't be moved. Trust that ground. Preach your moral rectitude. Do that. But if your response is untethered to that basis of morality, if it's based primarily on your feeling of indignation, your perspectives, your feelings in this moment, should you take a stand and fight? Should you trust that ground to be stable? Should you preach your moral rectitude? If your morality is based on, well, you, I'm preaching to myself as much as to you. I hate, I hate being wrong. I hate it. Most of the time, at my best, that means I try very hard not to, and if I ever realize that I am, I'll be the first person to sit there and go, oh, I was horribly wrong. I'll come back the next week in Sunday school, begin the Sunday school lesson going, I was so wrong, I'm so sorry, because I hate being wrong. And sometimes that makes me trip and say, I'm resistant to being told I'm wrong. 
And as long as I'm resistant because I know that it's based on Scripture and that my attitude is based on Scripture, then don't move. But if it's based on... (laughs) I should have never taken that stand in the first place. Especially if that ground is shifting. You know where the scariest place in battle is? This is fun. Because you want to talk about military theory and read Sun Tzu and Machiavelli and von Clausewitz over the years and look at what they say is the worst place to be in battle. And some people would be like, in the valley. No, it's not in the valley. It's up in the, it's in the rocks where you can't get, it's where you don't have an escape. You know where the scariest place to be is in the battle? Lost. More than one theorist has said the worst place you could possibly be in the battle is to say, I don't know where the lines are. Am I, am I in front of enemy lines? Behind enemy lines? Such a dense fog, I don't even know who I'm shooting at. Do I run that way or do I run this way? Where's safety? That's the worst place to be in a battle. And I contend that today we live with an increased moral sensitivity that's tied to an untethered basis for morality. Increasingly, I am taking up arms to fight. And increasingly, I have no idea what ground I'm standing on. And somehow, for some reason, the battle's getting more stressful every day. Read von Clausewitz. He'll explain to you why. It's so easy to get lost in that, in our, in our humanness. It's so easy to do that. Spend so much of our time worrying so much about so much. But Jesus gives us such a better stability than that, such a better standard than that. In the very next verse, he says, I tell you, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry about your life. Yeah, but this is a life and death issue. Okay, he covered that. Don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink, what about your body, about what you'll wear? Isn't life more important than food, the body more important than clothes? You're stressing about circumstantial things because they're sitting right there in front of you and you lose sight of, like, you know, foundational things because they're under all the stuff that you see right in front of you. He says, remember the foundational stuff. Don't worry. Who, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Seriously, what... What is all that worry, all that stress, all that offense, all that outrage? How does that benefit? I'm not even talking about those times where you stood up against injustice and got between them and the victim. I'm talking the outrage itself. Your immediate sense of... Who did that benefit? And then how many hours have I wasted? Have you wasted? Have we wasted worrying and stressing and fretting and outraging about yesterday or about tomorrow or about this week? About what may happen if... Can I tell you something? Let me get this out of the way. You will be cheated. Somebody will call you names and you didn't deserve them. You're going to get sick and you didn't even do anything wrong. And then you will die. They may not be today. They may not all be on the same day. So if you stress about any of those going, but that may happen. Let me get this out of the way. It will. Now you don't have to stress about it. Here, we've dealt with that. How many hours have I wasted? And does that stress benefit me? Does it benefit my family? Does it benefit my witness to the world around me? Do I show them that I am a sojourner passing through this place? Or do I show them that this is my home just as much as it is theirs? Does my knee-jerk offense, does my knee-jerk outrage? Instead, he says in verse 33, seek 
first his kingdom, his righteousness. Before you stress about all the stuff, get offended about all the details, outraged about all the circumstances, start with focusing on his righteousness. Start with focusing on his righteous character and all this. Start with God as your basis, God as your standard. Start by tethering yourself entirely on what his righteous priorities would be in this, whatever this you find yourself in. Hint, there's a very good probability that his priorities will involve a great deal more grace than yours will, than mine will. So it's probably better that I start with that, that grace, that you didn't deserve this, but I love you, so I'm going to do this. Therefore, he says in verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Part of why Jesus says, how about we just pray for our daily bread? Let's just get through today. We'll do that again tomorrow. In general, verse 34, don't worry. Trust that God has things in hand. In the next verse, and don't judge either. Trust that God has things in hand. Same basic theme, isn't it? Applied a different way. Don't judge either, or you too will be judged. In the same way you judge others, you're going to be judged. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans? Don't be judging. Don't be a judging, judgery, judgehead, because... How you judge is how you're going to be judged. Wouldn't you rather make sure that we're all judging based on the same, same, appropriate, eternal, unchanging standard? Judge that way. Use good biblical judgment. Don't be a judging judger. I don't want to jump to judgment so quickly. I don't want to judge so intensely. I don't want to judge so completely. Do you want to live in God's grace? as beloved and forgiven and accepted. Do you? Do you want to live in God's unmerited favor? Do you? I do. Is there anybody that you kind of feel a little judgy by because, I mean, they did you wrong and you should have been there on Tuesday when they... Is there? Pick one. Pick one because you can't have both. Don't do that. You can't serve two masters. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? The carpenter's son tells us. Trust me, I'm all, I'm all about specks of sawdust in eyes and that time that James flicked me in the eye with the sawdust. I'm all over that. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank sticking out of your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your sinful, horrible eye, when all the time there's this plank in your own and you refuse to acknowledge it. You hypocrite. I'm sorry, how intensely is Christ saying this? He just got finished teaching us how to pray by saying, forgive us our debts as we have also already forgiven those who have sinned against us. How can we be ingracious in our judgment to others while begging for grace from God? Outrage against sin comes so easily. And, and, that, and that outrage, let's be honest, that outrage about sin usually comes when we encounter sin in others. When we encounter sin in ourselves, we're chagrined. When Sarah sins, I'm outraged. When Sarah points out my sin, I go, huh, you're probably right. Or I'm outraged that she should judge me that way. Either way, it's a double standard. Oh, it's hypocrisy. 
outrage if we truly believe that we're saved, if we truly believe that we're loved, outrage if we truly believe that we're loved by God, not based on what we do, outrage if we truly believe it's not based on what we do or on what we deserve, outrage. Why do we outrage against others? Because we would have to show them some sort of unmerited favor if we were to forgive them. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. That's what Christ did for me. But our grace, this unconditional forgiveness is so conditional so much of the time. Oh, I'd love him if he would just, I'd forgive her if she would just get, if she would come to me, I would never act. If anybody believes that, then he's just, why does he get, why does he get to do what I wanted to do? I was looking forward, I thought that was my position and that didn't get to me. Why does she get a crown and I didn't? I came to church this morning for my Burger King crown and I didn't walk away with one. No, you didn't. Please tell me you didn't. Please tell me you came today because you want to honor the same Lord and Savior that I want to honor. That's why we came today, to worship him. I've said it before and it bears repeating. The sound that kills a church isn't that crackle of the fire or the pounding of nails. It's that... (coughs) I don't... How many of us have made that sound about a brother or sister knee-jerk immediately this week already? You get to use judgment. You get to call sin, sin. But that sound of self-justified disdain is wrong. Outrage, offense is infectious. It's pandemic. Stress, worry, anxiety, gracelessness. It's about me and I feel this way and this is the way the world is. You're surrounded by it every day, inundated by it every day, pounded every day in its shape. And so we judge so quickly, so intensely, so completely that we can't sometimes even hear the words that somebody was telling us. And I don't care why you said that. I didn't say that. That's, but you were saying that. I didn't say that. You're saying, I don't understand why you, why would you, why would you, why would Why? 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 Beloved, every action in your life, every word, every heart beat is in support of one regime or another. This world or God's kingdom. Your flesh or God's spirit within you. The trick is figuring out which is which and consciously deciding which is which. And how to actively serve. How? On what moral basis I should respond here? And I drop this ball so often. I miss the mark. There's a word for that. What's the word for missing the mark that God had for us? I sin in this. When I leap to judgment, I do exactly what he tells me not to do, and that is sin. And I don't ever want to do that. Paul makes a wonderful argument in Romans. I shouldn't ever have to do that again. That's the old me. Dragging this corpse with me. Why would I do that? I want to make sure that I'm basing this on something better. Jesus ultimately gives us a rule so famous even non-Christians like it. Matthew 7, 12, same context. He says, so in everything, how about this? Do to others what you would have them do to you. That's pretty much, that's, let's just, how about that? That's good. Put that on your pillow. Do that. Put a cross stitch on the wall with that. However you'd like to be treated by others, figure out how to live that out to them. Do that out. You'd like them to have warmer hearts, to love you better, treat you better, show you some grace. You ever want that? I wish people had warmer hearts, more patience, would listen to me, treat me with some grace. You ever want that? 
I wish they had some thicker skins because that's not what I meant. And man, he just jumped to being offended at this. I don't understand. I wasn't doing, he just judged me so quickly. I wish, I wish that he didn't react so badly, so quickly. I, I wish he showed me some grace. You ever want that? If you want that from them, then logically, theologically, we should have warmer hearts and thicker skins. We should have warmer hearts to figure out how best to love, actively, consciously, thoughtfully love those around us with grace. We should have thicker skins to roll with the essential capital T truth that the people around us do not know how best to thoughtfully love us with grace. And we need to teach them. We need to teach ourselves. We need to teach one another how to do that through our example as we follow Christ's example based on, tethered to, a moral basis that doesn't change. Because grace, showing unmerited favor, showing love instead of offense and anger, and that's not natural for us as humans. It's a learned response. And that means that often we don't even recognize it when we're not showing it because it always seems so natural. Our reaction but it comes from being morally sensitive but tethered to a morality beyond us. Warmer hearts, thicker skins, not because we're nice, but because God showed us grace and then said, what I've done, you go do. Can we pray today for God to just show us our hearts today? I'm not trying to beat us up. I'm trying to wake us up. Us. Me too. That we need to stop and say, Lord, show me my heart. Not so that I feel guilty, but so that I live right and based on something right. Amen? She joins me in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we are not just us. We are not just the sum total of our fears, our neuroses, our anxieties, our upsetness, our offense, our outrage. Our, we are not just knuckle-dragging brute beasts who can use words. We are spiritual beings given life and eternal life through your spirit and dwelt with your spirit, ambassadors of your kingdom. Help us to live like that. Help us to live like that. Show us our hearts today and help them to honor you in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.